I'll just uh, read from 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse 1. Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know what full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up, just as you also are doing. Okay, so this morning we're going to be continuing on from where we left off last week. Now, since it's a continuation, it's probably good to review what we covered last week. But if you remember, uh, Paul was seeking to address a major concern in the Thessalonian Christian community that were only a few months old. They had believed in the imminent return of Jesus, but they were concerned about those who had died before he had come back. And so their question was, what happens to those who, return, or who die before Jesus returns? Do they miss out on the blessings of the future? Do they miss out on the resurrection and so on? And Paul's answer was amazingly comforting to them. He said, you have nothing to fear. Those are my words, not Paul's, but the summary was, you have nothing to fear. You have nothing to fear because a future hope awaits all those whose faith is in Christ, whether dead or alive at his return. Not only nothing to fear in terms of that, but they're prioritized. The, the dead in Christ rise first. Now this brought tremendous comfort to a troubled community, and that was Paul's intention. Now remember too, we refer to Christ's coming as the day of the Lord. And so we began to unpack last week in chapter 4 what that looked like and what that meant. And so we're continuing on in chapter 5 now, with, this more, with Paul teaching more about this day of the Lord. And so Paul's going to really change topics a little bit. The first question in chapter 4 was, what happens to those who die in Christ? Today's question that he addresses is more is, how is he going to come? In what way is he coming for those who are dead in Christ and alive in Christ? And how are we to live in light of the fact that he's coming back? So Paul's continuing on with the same event, but a different focus. Now, I just want to, before we even dive into this, and I probably should have said this last week, but there was so much to say last week, um, that uh, this focus of the Lord's return is an incredibly pervasive subject in the New Testament. There's about 260 chapters in the New Testament the Lord's return is mentioned over 300 times. Is that staggering to you? 300 occurrences in 260 chapters. That means you're averaging over two, uh, one per chapter. 
Now, you may or may have not noticed this in our study of Thessalonians, but did you realize in every chapter of Thessalonians, his return is mentioned? It's so important. We need to look at this together as a church. I want you to turn to chapter 1 and verse 9 and 10. For they themselves report about what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he has raised from the dead. The second coming of Christ is mentioned. The day of the Lord is mentioned right there. Look at 2.19. For who is our hope of joy or crown of exaltation is it not even you in the presence of our Lord Jesus at his coming? For you are our glory and joy. Look at 3.13. He says, So that he may establish your hearts without blame and holiness before our God and the Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. Last week's sermon, the entire chapter 4, was about his coming. Chapter 5 in the beginning is about his coming. And look at verse 23 of chapter 5 as he ends the letter. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be prepared or preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. I think we could learn an important lesson right off the, off the cuff here. Is that in the New Testament church, if you are sitting around the supper table with a New Testament Christian, the focus of many of the conversations and what you would have heard in sermons in the church would have been about the return of Jesus Christ. That's a major emphasis for a, two, a Christian 2,000 years ago as you sat around the supper table and talked about biblical things and what it was to be in relationship with him. The question is, how often do we think or even speak about the Lord's return in our own lives? I bring this up because I have a, I have a suggestion. This is, not in the, this is not from the Bible. This is Andrew Dexter giving his suggestion as to why that may be if we're not talking and thinking about it. Because our life is awesome here and it's really easy. What is the focus and the, what is the main issue in Thessalonica that we've been learning for, for, for weeks? They're an afflicted, persecuted church in which living out their faith in Jesus is tough. If you lived in that culture, you can't wait for Jesus to come back because this world is a tough place to live and you want to be with the Lord so bad because you know what he's got promised for you in the future. Perhaps why we don't think about it that often. Or maybe you do, so kudos to you. But I can throw myself under the bus here too. I don't think about it as probably as much as these guys do. So I stand convicted too. It's probably because life is comfortable. But may I suggest that probably in the future, if life gets more difficult for the Christian, we will be praying for and thinking about the return of Jesus a lot more. But let's dive into the text now. In verses 1 and 2. Now as to the times and epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, 
For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. This reference to times and epochs in relation to Jesus' return is not the first time this phrase is used in Scripture. In Acts chapter 1 and 6 through 8, Jesus, as he's about to ascend into, into heaven after the 50 days of, or 40 days of appearing to uh, his disciples, made this comment. They asked him, when are you restoring the kingdom? When are you going to do this? And this is, what we, this is the response. So when they had come together, they were asking him, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. So they want to know, when's the kingdom coming? And he said, it's not for you to know the times or epochs. So this is in relation to the second coming. So it's really about the events or era or seasons of which the Lord is going to return and all the those things that those entail. And so this is what he's saying to the Thessalonians. You already don't, you don't need any teaching in this because we've already told you about these things. Sometime in the past, when they, Paul was amongst them, he, he taught them about these types of things. But what he wanted to focus on in this particular section was how Jesus was going to return. How? And he says in verse 2, he's coming like a thief in the night. Like a thief in the night. Now, I know a lot of you guys like Petra. A lot of you guys like Skillet and all these rock bands, right? You probably like Leland as well, because they had that, you remember that song, Like a Thief in the Night, right? I bring this up because there's debate in the Christian circles as to who is Jesus Christ returning for like a thief. Many believe that he's coming for a, like a thief for the Christian community. And, and we even have a song that even suggests that. And I love Leland, by the way. I'm not picking on them because uh, one of my favorite songs is The Lion and the Lamb. And so this is nothing against them. But I want you to read uh, this here. Great is your love and your faithfulness. It's your faithfulness that carries me. Many times I've run away, forsook your love and all your grace. Still you call, call up my name. Yeah, you still care that I'd be saved. And so I'll sing the glories of your name, your awesomeness that I'll proclaim. Until you come, until you come, and take your bride away. Like a thief in the night, like a thief in the night, you'll take us away. The question is, is Jesus coming back for his bride, for us, like a thief? Well, I'm going to show you through the scriptures that that actually is not true. He's not coming like a thief for the bride of Christ. He's coming like a thief for those who do not know Christ. Let's walk this through together. In verse 3, he makes this comment. He says, after he makes the comment, they're coming just like a thief. Jesus is coming like a thief. He says, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, contrast, you brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and the sons of the day. We are not night nor of darkness. So Paul makes it clear it's not the Christian community that Jesus is coming back like a thief for. And if you think about this, imagine tucking your kids in in bed. You're saying your nightly prayers with your kids. And you say, just so you know, there's a thief coming tonight. How would they sleep? Panicky. Not with peace. 
Mom and Dad, why are you, you know, you're, you're getting woken up at 2 in the morning. Kids, why are you in my room again? Because a thief's coming. We know just like thieves come to do harm. They don't come to bring joy and comfort. And so he makes a contrast here. He says they are thinking it's going to be peaceful, but they, the people outside of Jesus, are going to have destruction come upon them. And so it's really important here that uh, we, under, we understand this. Paul is writing this to reassure the Thessalonians that the day of the Lord and Jesus coming like a thief poses no threat to them. There's no threat to them because they are already committed to Jesus Christ. They are sons of the day, not sons of the night. So yes, he's coming like a th- The only part of the thiefness of Jesus that we experience is the suddenness, how quick it comes and how unexpected it comes. But other than that, he's not coming for us in a harmful type of way. And so he's, he's presenting, again, comfort to a church. If, let's just say, they were worried about Christ coming back for some reason, he's saying, you don't have to worry about that day. He's not coming like a thief for you. Now, one more text that's really important because often this text is used to describe that Jesus is coming to take us away and leave others behind is Matthew 24. And I want to read this through you and walk this through biblically as well as what Jesus is actually saying here. Let's read this together. But of that day, the same day that's in 1 Thessalonians 5, um, an hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. There will be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. Now this passage is often used within the Christian community to suggest that we will be taken up to heaven, leaving non-believers behind. But the text is actually the very opposite. The very opposite of what that belief is actually uh, held to believe, I should say. Take a look at this. So, for as in those days before the flood, it says, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. There's a contrast between the people of Noah's day and Noah's behavior. They were being married, they were drinking, and so on and so forth, and then Noah entered the ark. Furthermore, he says, they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. They is contrasted to Noah. Did, un- did Noah have an understanding that the flood was coming? <laughs> well, of course he did. He built an ark in preparation for it. And the New Testament teaches that he was a preacher of righteousness. So when the neighbors are watching Noah start with like a couple two-by-fours on the lawn, and next thing you know, a hundred years go by, and there's this massive, massive like, you know, like boat on his lawn. They're like, Noah... What are you doing, you crazy man? He's like, I'm preparing this because God's going to judge the world with a flood. And everyone laughs at him and ridicules him and persecutes him. So again, this is really important. Hebrews 11:7 said, By faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in holy fear prepared an ark for the salvation of his household by which he condemned the world. So Noah fully understood what was going on. It was the people around them that had no idea that judgment was coming. 
so when God's judgment came, he took the people away in the flood. Not Noah, they were preserved in safety. And then he says this, So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. So the context clearly states that left behind were those where Noah and his family, those taken were those who, were, who had rejected the Lord. So why again did Paul write this? To reassure the Thessalonians that the day of the Lord and his coming like a thief was nothing for them to worry about. It did not pose a threat because they already had surrendered their lives to Jesus Christ and were protected by his grace and his salvation. Now, even though Christ's return posed no threat, Paul did have a concern for them. And that was how they lived in waiting for his coming. And this is spelled out in verse 6 and 7. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. Paul's using a source of imagery here, or a series of images, I should say, in which one could live in relation to the expectation of Christ's return. On one side, you could be a person of the dark and the night. Those, the behaviors uh, associated with nighttime and darkness was sleeping and drunkenness. On the flip side, you could be a person of the day or the light. Your behaviors would be associated with being alert or sober. Now, Paul is primarily not using these terms in the literal sense, but to speak metaphorically of spiritual realities. What's the difference between drunkenness and, and uh, sleeping and alertness and soberness? The difference is one's awareness or attentive, attentiveness of what's going on around you. <clears throat> if you're asleep, you have no idea what's happening in the outside world. You have none. You don't even know what's going on in your own house, what your kids are up to, or if you're the kids, what your parents are up to. Like You have no idea because you're out. You're out for the count. If you're drunk, it's the same thing, depending on the level of drunkenness. But if you're actually, like, absolutely gone, absolutely blotted, then you don't have a clue. You're dull. Your senses are dulled. You have no idea what's going on around you. And so Paul, again, is speaking about spiritual realities, not the, the, the actual realities of what these words mean. And he's like, Thessalonians, here's how I want you to live. I want you to live as sober, alert people. I want you to be spiritually attentive to the realities of Jesus Christ coming back. I want you to be aware. I don't want you to be like the others around you in your communities that have no idea that he's coming back, and even what that entails for their life. Don't be like a drunken, sleeping person, spiritually speaking. Instead, be sober. Now, for Paul, this meant dressing in a particular way. They were to dress for success. What kind of clothes were they to wear? Well, we pick it up in verse 8. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on 
the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Notice the clothing. It's not pajamas. It's armor. A sleeping person puts on pajamas. An alert person puts on armor. And notice the kind of armor it is. It's spiritual armor. But it's a soldier's armor. A warrior's armor. It's one who puts on a breastplate, which would protect your, your, your chest and your heart. It's one who puts on a helmet, the hope of salvation. Now, this is awesome. I'm really grateful to Stuart because he, 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 he made this comment and observation, so he gets the credit. But when I was sharing my sermon with him, he said, Andrew, uh, what's interesting about a helmet and about a breastplate is they're defensive in nature in terms of armor. What's a helmet for? Protection. What's a breastplate for? Protection. He said, the things you're to put on, these, these areas of faith, hope, and love are designed for your protection. This is the way you go to battle in this world, is to protect yourself by living out your faith, your hope, and your love. So how do you do that? Or what is that? Well, faith is not just your initial saving faith, but faithfulness. That is why for the first four chapters, Paul has been dealing with a series of things in their lives that he's commending them for and wanting them to excel all the more in. He's like, so far we've learned that he's encouraging them to continue to persevere in the midst of persecution. They're to pay attention to their sexual immorality and to make sure they live a life of holiness. They're to work hard and not be dependent on others for provisional care. These are the kinds of things we've learned so far. So they're to walk in faith and faithfulness. Love. Love is simply that you, you self-sacrifice your own desires and wants and needs for others so that they can benefit above yourself. Paul already affirmed twice in the letter, you're doing well in this, but you're to excel all the more. And hope. Hope. The expectation of uh, our salvation. And this is not like hope, like I hope so, but hope I know so. Right? Your hope of salvation, do you think so or do you know so? You know so as a Christian. You're to live in that. But again, if you're experiencing persecution and, and, and you're getting beat up in life, like let's forget like the physical stuff for a second. Let's say you're at work and every day at work is such a drudge because people make fun of you for your faith. Or, or there's a family member, every time you get together, they're always critical of you at the supper table and they make fun of your Christian faith. Those kind of things wear you down. They make you want to be unloving, unhopeful, even ditch your faith in Christ because you're like, I'm done with Jesus because it's too hard to live being faithful, faithful to him. If I just let him go, all this stops. And Paul says, no, put on defensive armor. Keep fighting by living out your faith and being faithful, by continuing to love others and have a, a solid hope knowing that Christ is coming back to redeem you from this trouble one day. 
and the future he has in store for you is worth everything. And so he starts to get into this in verse 9. He says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Paul has a great promise here for those who don't wear pajamas and wear spiritual armor. He says, there's a salvation awaiting you, whether you're awake or asleep at his return. The day of the Lord is a glorious thing for us who have faith in Christ. The day of the Lord will be a frightening thing for those who don't. But I love how Paul defines our final eternity or our final destiny. Notice in verse 10, he says, um, it's about being with him. He says, whether you're awake or asleep, we will live together with him. This is an incredible uh, picture of what it is to be in glory. Think about this again, back to chapter 4. Their number one concern in Thessalonica is what? What happens to my loved ones who's died before Jesus' return? Paul's answer, they will be with him. You would think Paul would say something like this. Your, your, your heart is so concerned about your loved ones who've passed away. Let me just know that when Christ comes back, you'll be with them. But he doesn't say that. He says, you'll be with him. That's powerful. My love, my, I've lost my grandma. I've lost a child. I've lost my dad, and I'm grieving. I can't wait to be with them, Paul says. You can't wait to be with him. See his focus? His focus about Jesus. Why? Because without Jesus, you wouldn't see them. You wouldn't get to glory to be with them. Notice the definition of Jesus Christ in verse 10. How is, why is there a hope of salvation? He says, he's the one who died for us. He died for us. Remember last week, we went through what, what's the importance of the resurrection and why was it so important he died and rose again? Because sin has been defeated. Death has been defeated. And through faith in him, you have forgiveness of sin and therefore the promise of eternal life. The death cannot hold you in the grave. Spiritually, you are alive through faith in Christ, and bodily, you'll be alive through faith in Christ. It's about him. And you know what's crazy is that he said that in chapter 4 as well, didn't he? In chapter 4, he mentioned again that they would be with him. It's verse uh, 12. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we shall always be with him the Lord. The Lord's the focus of chapter 4. The Lord's the focus of chapter 5. No wonder Paul in describing what's going to be the most glorious day for believers and the most terrifying day for unbelievers verse 11 says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you also are doing.
chapter 4 and verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Chapter 5, verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And I know I may have hit a sensitive topic last week, but I'll say this again. This is why chapter 4 and chapter 5 belong together as one single event. He's answering two questions regarding the day of the Lord. First one, what happens to those who die in Christ? They will be with him, comfort one another. Chapter 5, what about, like, do we have anything to fear in that coming? No, you don't. You're going to be with him. It's, it's, it's going to be a terrible day for many, but not a terrible day for you. Now comfort one another with these words. I hope this message has brought you the same kind of comfort that was intended for the Thessalonians. The day of the Lord and his coming is nothing to fear for you and I because the one who died for you is the one who's coming for you. The one who died for you is the one who's coming for you so that you can be with him in eternity and then experience them who you loved and missed through death. So what are we to learn from today's message? When the day of the Lord occurs and Jesus returns like a thief in the night, there will be nothing to fear for those whose faith is in him. Nothing to fear for us. He's not coming for you and I in a thief-like way. He's coming for those who rejected him in a thief-like way. Question then, as a follower of Jesus, how often do you think about Christ's return? <clears throat> 260 chapters, 300 mentions of the second coming. Thessalonians ends every single chapter with the coming of the Lord. How often do you and I think about this? Maybe a more important question is why or why not? And I'll leave that with you to wrestle. Bring this up at the supper table tonight as you sit around with your families. Pretend like you're part of the Thessalonian community. What would their answer be versus our answer? And why do you think that would be the case? <clears throat> Question for you as well. Has the reality of his return impacted the way you live? If Paul were to write a personal letter to you, what do you think he might say? For them, they're to live in faith, hope, and love. They're continue to pursue the Christian life that Paul's called them to. He wrote a letter to them saying, I am pleased with you in your faith, but I want you to excel still the more in some areas. And he highlighted some areas. So he's pleased but he's like, he wants to give them like an extra kick in the pants to say, keep going. So, do you live differently with the belief that Jesus is coming back? Paul's saying it's supposed to impact the way we live. But what would he say if he wrote you a letter? Like a, not just like a letter to the Genesis house, but a personal letter. And Paul comes up to, you know, he comes up to like Mike or Roger or Tori and he says, 
I have a letter for you. I want you to open it. And you're like, what's in it? Well, I'm going to talk to you about the areas that the Lord's pleased in, but the areas he wants you to still excel all the more. What would that letter sound like? Whatever the areas of pleasing are, celebrate those. Whatever the areas of excel all the more in, take them seriously. Take them seriously. Knowing that Jesus is coming back. And finally, if he were to return tomorrow, would you be ready to face God? I want to speak to the kids and the teenagers. You are, at a young age, under your parents' faith, under their protection, under their authority, and under their banner. But there's going to come a day when you will no longer stand under their faith and their banner. The Lord will hold you accountable for your own decisions, your own actions, and your own thoughts because you are now an adult. My question to you is, are you ready to make that full commitment to him from the understanding that you have even now, knowing that he's coming back? Take this question like seriously, and I encourage you kids like crazy to make your faith your own. Make your faith your own apart from your parents. Know that the Lord loves you. And as it says in verse 10, he died for you. So that you and I could be forgiven. Just like your mom and dad were.